Good morning. Uh, as she said, this is uh, Ascension Sunday, where we'll talk about the ascension of Christ, but let me start like this. Uh, there is a, uh, a new NPR podcast called Throughline. Anybody heard it? I do not see enough hands in the air, okay? It's a, it's a good podcast. They do a good job. Their tagline is this. We look at events from the past that explain the present. That tagline, we look at events from the past that explain the present, is what we do every Sunday when we gather. And throughout church history, there have, uh, we, we have calendared in, calendared in a few uh, days throughout the year to highlight particular events from Jesus' life and ministry that explain the present. So, for example, his birth, right, Advent, Christmas Eve, his death, Good Friday, his resurrection, Easter Sunday. But those are not the only events from Jesus' life that have been calendared into the church calendar. There is also Jesus' ascension, where he ascended from earth to heaven, and then Pentecost, where the Spirit came down from heaven to earth. And today is Ascension Sunday, but the ascension is something that largely gets ignored. Why? I think one of the reasons it largely gets ignored is that we don't really understand what's happening. And so let me try to illustrate like this. Um, If I said to you, or if we said, somebody ascended to the throne of England... They ascended to the throne of England. We, uh, we mean two things by this. One, there's a physical chair that they can go and they sit in the, the throne. But there's also, there's also ascending to a place of authority. Ascending to a place of authority over the people. There's a change in the nature of the relationship when somebody ascends. So if I had a childhood friend uh, who ascended to the throne of England, I guess also if I lived in England... But if I had a childhood friend who ascended to the throne of England, we might still be friends, but there's now a change in the nature of our relationship. He is now in a position of authority over me. When we talk about Jesus' ascension, we are talking about both. That he physically ascended, and when he did, there was a change in the nature of the relationship. He ascended physically, and he took his seat as king over the nations. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to draw a through line from Jesus' ascension to our presence. And we're going to do so out of Genesis 11, because we're going to try to, as best we're able, understand the ascension of Jesus as it fits in the larger narrative of the Bible. And so let's talk context of Genesis 11. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of creation, and in the middle of creation, middle of this um, opening of the scriptures, there's a mandate given from God. The mandate goes like this, you have been created in my image, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the horizontal call the horizontal mandate from God to humanity to go, to multiply, to fill the earth. But then, chapter 3, sin enters the world. Rebellion enters the human heart in Genesis 3. Violence and murder is the immediate effect right off. God is angry about this, and God floods the earth. But what does he do? He saves Noah through the flood. And after he does, He repeats the mandate from Genesis 1. Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
he repeats the horizontal call of go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But the key words that get repeated, bless them, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Both in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, you have my blessing, now go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And that is where we hit Genesis 11. Genesis 11, it starts like this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So, it starts out, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And here they want to build a city and a tower, a city with walls, a place of safety and a security, a way of keeping the outsiders as outsiders. And they want to build a tower extending up into the heavens, a tower where they could get into the presence of God. But it didn't stop there. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. We want a reputation, a global reputation. When other people speak of our city and our tower, we want them to do so with respect. We, we want a name for ourselves. The word, the Hebrew word name here, it's the word associated with reputation. We want a reputation, a global, honorable, respectable, they will look up to us, reputation. If we could go back to Genesis 1 and 9, and remember God speaking blessing over them, this is them saying, what God says about me is not enough. I want my neighbors to speak highly of me as well. It is not sufficient for God to speak blessing over me. I want my neighbors to think respectfully of me. I don't just want the honor that comes from God. I want the honor that comes from my neighbor. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like the narrative of us so you see, in these four verses, we don't simply have an ancient story about an ancient city with an ancient tower. We have the story of humanity. The Tower of Babel isn't simply an ancient story about an ancient city in an ancient tower. It is the story of humanity. I, I want to build a city. I want safety, protection, security. I want a tower. I want to be able to earn my way right up into the presence of God. I, I want a Name. I want reputation and respect of my neighbors. City, tower, name. This is the story of humanity. It is the story of us. It is my story. It is our story. But the depth of their rebellion gets explicit at the end of verse 4 when it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is the utter, complete, and clear inversion of the horizontal mandate that God gave. This is the complete inversion of go, multiply, and fill the earth. This is we are not going to be dispersed throughout the earth. We are going to gather together. We are going to protect ourselves from one another, and we're going to build a tower right up into the heavens. This is the horizontal mandate getting rejected and a vertical desire replacing it. It's the inversion. So how does God feel? What does God do? Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, there is some divine irony right there, is it not? Which the children of man had built, hold on to that phrase, children of man. 
And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. So the Lord comes down in what is one of the great biblical stories of divine irony, and he confuses the language, disperses them. All the things that they didn't want, God comes down and says, I'm going to do it to you anyway. But in these eight verses now that we've read from this story, there's a word that gets repeated four times. Can you guess what that word is? One. One. One language, one word, one speech, one language. God is not after uh, this utter uniformity. He, he wants uh, horizontal expansion and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion is what he is after, and they want vertical safety and exclusion. It's the inversion of what God called them to. And what's happening here, and I'm getting this from Miroslav Volf, who's just a brilliant Croatian theologian. He says, what, what's going on in this city is essentially this is a city that's saying, you know what we're not going to be? We are not going to be culturally, we are not going to be linguistically, we are not going to be ethnically diverse. We are going to be linguistically, culturally, ethnically homogenous. And God has to come down and force diversity on the city. He says, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Which is why they are called the children of man, because they are not reflecting the heart of God. They are reflecting the heart of man. The heart of man that would say, I want a vertical tower, and I want a city with walls. I want safety and security and protection, and I want to be able to make my way right up into the presence of God, as opposed to I am going to go out, and I'm going to take the presence of God out into the world. I'm going to take the image of God and multiply it and fill the earth with it. They are reflecting the heart of man, which is why I think verse 9 is the key to understanding how the story of the Tower of Babel fits in the larger story of the Bible. Verse 9 that says this, therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So the city was named Babel. Babel. B-A-B-E-L. But here's what's interesting. The, the word to confuse to, to confuse the languages. It's not the word Babel. It's not the Hebrew word Babel. It's the Hebrew word Balal. Sounds similar, but it's not the same. So here's a question for you. Why would the city be named Babel and not Balal? Why the change? Here's why. This verse, this verse links the name of the city Babel with the verb Balal which means to confuse, to mix, to mingle. But Babel is also the name used in the Old Testament for the city of Babylon. As a city, Babylon symbolizes humanity's ambition to dethrone God and make the earth its own. Babel, and later Babylon, is the quintessential worldly city where man rises to exalt himself to the position of a god. You see, here's the point. The point is that Babel became Babylon, the quintessential city of human rebellion and human, uh, the human ambition to replace God as their own God. 
It was a representative city for human rebellion. And as a representative city, it didn't just represent cities, it represents the human heart. Listen to this. History demonstrates that Babylonian hearts are endemic to humanity. Stop with that line right there. There's a lot more to it, but I want to read that line again. History demonstrates that Babylonian hearts are endemic to humanity. Centuries after the fiasco at Babel, Nebuchadnezzar strode over the ramparts of his royal palace and declared, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Centuries later, when King Herod addressed his people, they shouted, the voice of a God and not of a man. The litany of histories Babylonian hearts roll easily from our lips. Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, when he died, some feared that God had died. Stalin, who encouraged those who were weary to think of him, of course, of course, of course, though, we do not need history to understand this. We have the imperial self, our tendency to become many kings, to exalt our little Babylonian hearts to the throne of our lives. Of course, we do not need history, do we? We have the imperial self. We have our Babylonian hearts that exalts ourselves to the position of the throne over our lives. Babel represents the human heart. We all build towers. We all build cities. We all cities. We all try to make a name for ourselves. This is not simply an ancient story about an ancient city. It's the story of the human heart. It's the story of my heart. It is the story of yours. Babel exists inside you and me. And so from here on, when I speak of Babel or Babylon, I'm speaking of it as a representative city for human rebellion, the rebellious human heart, my heart and yours. Babel isn't just a story but a city and a tower. It's a story about humanity. So where does that story go from here? Well, if we pick it up one chapter later, Genesis 12, this is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And you will bless those, and I will bless those, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The story goes like this. Abraham, go. 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 I am going to bless you to bless others. In other words, go. Be fruitful and multiply. Go. Be fruitful. Multiply. But here's what's interesting. Every commentator I found agreed on this. When it says, go, uh, uh, go from your country, which is the word land. Go from your land. What land do you think that was? Babel. Babel. Go. Go. Leave Babel. Take blessing and go bless others with it. So here's the point. When God said to Abraham to go, he was saying, go out into the world and invert the effects of Babel. Go and bring about the redemption of Babel and Babylon in the world. Go and invert what happened in Genesis 11. Go be the redeemer and bring about redemption for Babylon, invert the effects of Babel. And here's how it's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. We're going to form a nation. We're going to form a nation of people that were called Israel. And here's what Israel is going to do. Israel is going to be a tower for the nations. Israel is going to be a place of safety. I mean, a place where you come into the presence of God where you don't need a tower because you have 
a temple, and Israel is going to be a true city, a place of safety and security where the nations could come in and find protection. The danger that exists out in the world, the nations can come into Israel and find protection. Israel is going to be a people marked by my name where it is my reputation that matters, that the place where you come and the worship of God can invert and undercut and uproot the worship of your self, and you're going to be a source of shalom in the world, a source of blessing and peace and good for the world, including, including Babylon. Did you know in Genesis, uh, and by Genesis I mean Jeremiah, <laughs> they are not the same, for the record. Jeremiah 29, Israel is exiled and they're in Babylon, and God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is how you're to live in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare. The welfare is the word shalom, complete and total human flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its shalom you will find your shalom. Even while you are in Babylon, go be fruitful, multiply, bring about shalom in the world, even in not the figurative Babylon, but the literal Babylon. Israel was meant to be the anti-Babel in the world. This is what the nation of Israel was meant to be, the anti-Babel in the world, the place, the community, the nation where God's shalom and God's heart extended in them through them to the world, the tower, the city, the source of blessing in the world. But as you read through the Old Testament, here's what you find. You find that it didn't really work out that well. They were, they were more often less, less like an anti-Babylon and more often an extension of Babylon. They were less often anti-Babel, more often an extension of Babel in the world. Because you see, this is the problem. Babel didn't just make its way into the hearts of, its, of the nations. It made its way into the heart of Israel. And so God had sent people out with Babylon in their heart to being about redemption in Babylon. This was the problem. God pursued the Babylons of the world with people who had Babel in their own hearts. And so what does God do? God enters Babylon himself. See, God descended into a Babylonian world full of people with Babylonian hearts, but he didn't come down a tower. He came through the womb of a virgin. And he didn't come with a global reputation. He came into an obscure, middle-of-nowhere town but he came to be what Israel was meant to be, the true anti-Babel in the world. The true anti-Babel of the world. He lived, died, was resurrected, and appeared to his, to his disciples. And when he did, he said this. Then he said to them, this is the end of Luke. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, Babel got inverted when God came down in the form of a man, a man who did not have Babylon in his heart, a man who did not, who did not prioritize safety and security over all else, but walked into the danger that Babel was trying to avoid on the cross. Walked into the danger. For you, for me, to invert Babel, walked into the danger that they were trying to protect themselves from, and then he walked right out of the grave so that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed to all nations, to all peoples throughout the entire earth. But it doesn't stop there. He says, and you are witnesses to these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Did you see what Jesus did first? Bless them. He blessed them. Here is the through line from creation to Noah to Abraham to Jesus. He blessed them. And then he ascended into heaven. And when he did, when he ascended, he became the true city. The true place of safety and security and presence of God. The eternal source of safety and security. All that they ever wanted in Babel was found in the ascended Christ. He became the true tower, the means of getting into the presence of God. The tower that extended into the heavens, Jesus became the tower. He became how you get into the presence of God. And he ascended to the throne that all other thrones are simply shadows of. Simply shadows of the real thing as he ascended to his seat as king over the nations. And when he took his rightful position of authority over the nations, listen to the disciples' life. Think about the disciples' life before this. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Look at the turn in the disciples' life. Before the ascension of Jesus, the disciples' life looked like what? Looked like Babel. Fear. Marked by fear. Remember Peter? Three times. I don't know that man. Who, him? Uh, I mean, I'm sure I've met him somewhere along the way, but I, I don't know that man. I am not with that man. What, what are you going to do to him? No, okay, I don't want that. I don't know that man. Using Jesus to make a name for themselves. Remember the question? Hey, who, who's going to be first? In, in your kingdom, I get it, you're the king, but in your kingdom, who gets the first place? Who's first seat in your kingdom? Can I be that? Can I be the one that everyone looks at and goes, man, Jesus sure loved him, making a name for themselves. And here, Jesus ascends, and immediately the disciples become the anti-Babel. They worship Jesus, not their own security. They returned to Jerusalem. They submitted humbly to Jesus commands. They are marked by joy, not fear, and they go to the temple blessing God. Why does that matter? Well, um, here's one reason. They were imitating Jesus and not the world. They were following their Redeemer. And as we follow the book of, uh, we follow Luke forward into the book of Acts, here's what we find. We find these disciples working for the shalom of all, healing of spiritual and physical needs, working for the shalom of all. In other words, we see them going, bearing fruit, and multiplying. Be fruitful and multiply. 
And so here is the through line. Here is the through line from Jesus' ascension right to us. Here it is. Your life can look like the anti-Babel in the world. Your life can be the anti-Babel in the world God saved you to be. Your life can be marked by worship of Jesus, not your own security. You can, you can worship him as the supreme king and take yourself off the throne of your life. Your life can be, can be marked by submission to Jesus' commands and humble obedience. Your life can be marked by these things. Your life can be marked by humble obedience and submission to Jesus' commands. Your life can be marked by joy. Your life does not have to be consumed with fear. It simply does not have to be consumed with fear. Your life can be marked with joy when you, when you bring the ascended reign of Christ deep into your soul. Your life can be marked with joy irrespective of circumstances, irrespective of what tomorrow has to offer. And your life can be given for the name and the fame of God, not your own reputation. That can be your life. You can give your life to going, being fruitful, and multiplying because the horizontal commission that God gave is our commission. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. We exist, the church exists, Sojourn Heights exists to be the anti-Babel in the world, to extend the reign of Christ and invert and uproot the effects of Babel in the world. When we say, let's go and make disciples, let's multiply parishes and plant churches, we are saying that we are here to invert the effects of Babel as we go and extend the reign of Christ in us and into others. So here's what a life in a parish is. One of these smaller communities that live life together, meet in homes weekly, life in a parish is the communal uprooting of Babylon from our hearts. It is the communal uprooting of Babylon from our hearts. And here's why we ask you to put down roots and just be here. We ask you to put down roots and just be here. To not see the heights as simply a cool place to live while I'm young. Because we want to give our lives to seeing the shalom of God make its way into the heights. To see the heights be a great place for all to live. All. So I ask you to put down roots and just be here. And of course, some of you might not be here tomorrow. I might not be here tomorrow. But let's just put down roots and just plan to be here. So that we can together commit to working for the good of our neighbor. To extending the rule and reign of Christ to our neighbor. Uprooting the effects of Babylon in the world. See, Babel was about creating a great city. A city that was good for a few. It wasn't a great city. I shouldn't have used that term. Jesus' ascension is about making the world good for all, and we want the heights to be a great place for all. That's why we ask you to use your finances, not simply as a means to build your own tower and your own city, but as a means to bless others and work for the effects of uprooting Babel in the world. We are meant to be the anti-Babel in the heights, the city within the city where all flourish, where all flourish, the tower where men and women can come into the presence of God. Do you want to know why we have chosen at Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Houston, a long-term, low-key, and relational form of ministry? 
Here's why. Because uprooting the effects of Babel in the world require you being in a relationship with your neighbor, requires me being in a relationship with my neighbor, and relationships take time. It simply takes time. And we are asking you to value kingdom come right here. Kingdom come right here in the city. Long-term, low-key, relational building with our neighbors to see the reign of Christ go beyond us into the lives and hearts of our neighbors. See, this text, this text, looking at the ascended Christ out of Genesis 11, brought up a few questions for me. Questions that go like this. Has Babylon been fully uprooted from our hearts? If the answer is no, we have work to do making disciples of one another. Question two, is every man, woman, and child in the Heights engaged by a neighborhood parish? A neighborhood parish working to uproot and redeem the effects of Babel in the world? If the answer is no, we have work to do multiplying parishes. Question three, is every man, woman, and child in the city of Houston engaged by a neighborhood parish, a neighborhood parish working to invert and uproot and redeem the effects of Babel in the world? If the answer is no, we have work to do planting churches. We have work to do. We are here to extend the rule and the reign of Christ in us, through us, to our neighbors. We have work to do. And the truth is that when I think about what we are here to do, it often feels impossible and can feel overwhelming to me. It can feel like something that if God does not do it, if God does not show up and empower us to go about and do it, it is never, ever going to happen, which is true. And so we should talk about that next week. For now, remember this, that Jesus' ascension redeems us out of Babylon and uproots Babel from our hearts. It calls us, calls us, calls the body of Christ and us specifically to be the anti-Babel in the world. The place where people come in and find eternal safety and security in the presence of Jesus. The place where people come to the true tower, come to the presence of God through the one who made it possible. It calls us to be the anti-Babel in the world, working for the good of all. Let's pray.